From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. When we think about the waste we generate, chances are the kitchen trash comes to mind. But what about what's hanging in your closet? 11 million tons of textile waste end up in U.S. landfills every year. Currently, the global fashion industry is around 65% polyester or synthetic-based, which is never going to disintegrate in the earth. And it's not just clothing. We'll dig through the tons of textile trash we throw out each year and talk solutions. Then, for the first time, new markers accurately commemorate what led to the demise of Denver's Chinatown. It feels relieving, I guess you can say, in a sense, and also feels reaffirming that, you know, our history is no longer something that's, like, forgotten or swept under the rug. Your car used to take you places, but it can't anymore. If you donate it to CPR, it can take you places again down the road to new ideas, new discoveries, and through your donation, hundreds of thousands of other people will be able to come along for the ride because your donation funds the radio you rely on. Get started on the safe and simple car donation process at CPR.org support. This is Colorado Matters on CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. So you're in the store, casually perusing the aisles, then you spot that item and you just have to have it. Those jeans, that dress, the cool suits, or those even cooler shoes. When you get home, the euphoria has died down. You stash it in your closet and then months and many times even years later, there it is, still hanging in your closet, unused, often with the price tag still dangling from the sleeve. Eventually, you throw it away or donate it and forget about it. But what you may not realize is that it's actually not really gone. Chances are that same clothing will end up in a landfill, joining the heap of textile waste that Americans throw out every year. Professor Sanali Didi of Colorado State University studies how consumers can learn to toss less. She joins us now to tell us about it. Dr. Didi, welcome to the program. Thank you, Chandra. Put a number on this problem for us. How much of the apparel and accessories that we buy get thrown away each year? According to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, um, 11 million tons of textile waste end up in U.S. landfills every year. And this was a figure in 2018, and it has steadily increased. Once these materials end up in a landfill, do they just eventually rot away? Probably not, because currently the global fashion industry is around 65% polyester or synthetic-based, which is never going to disintegrate in the earth. So it's just going to be there, Hmm. and it's just 35% is what we are looking at natural fiber market. So an archaeologist a couple of thousands of years from now will be able to figure out what we wore during the century. Absolutely. And most likely not a great condition um, in terms of the harmful chemicals it emits. I guess this is a simple question, but why do people buy so much and end up wasting so much? People tend to buy so much, and what I call this as overconsumption, is primarily because clothes over the years have become very cheap. Unlike 
previous decades where cloth buying was more thought as an investment. Now it is a matter of just walking by the shop and thinking, oh, I might just use this $5 shirt. I'm going to wear it somewhere. And it just doesn't get worn and taken care of as you would for a $100 shirt. Guilty is charged because, of course, I am a sucker for a sale. (laughs) So I can relate to that. But I'm also wondering how much social media plays into this because, you know, it's easy for us to blame millennials or the younger generation. But there's almost this uh, pressure, this celebrity red carpet style pressure that you can't rewear the same outfit that you were seen in on social media. Do you think that plays into it? Absolutely. I think over the years, social media and just a different generation and just because the cost has been so low has fueled the uprise of fast fashion. And now we call it the ultra fast fashion, where brands like Shein, H&M um, are kind of producing clothes for way too cheap and way too many styles in a day. And the need for having newness uh, is promoted and encouraged on social media. For example, on YouTube, you have haul videos where people show off what they have shopped for, which again promotes and encourages others to go and buy things which they may actually never use or need, but they just want to have it. Definitely see this specifically on social media. You know, it's very common to literally open the boxes on camera and just pull out the items, try them on. They're adding music. So it's kind of adding kind of an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And next thing you know, you're out buying something new that you didn't plan on buying. Absolutely. And the emotional aspect of it, the I would say the temporary happiness or the high which you get dies down really quick because it was momentary happiness which you got by buying something to show people that, yes, you have it. I don't know, doctor. This is starting to feel like a therapy session for me. (laughs) (laughs) What role do thrift stores and consignment shops play in all of this? Is donating to those places helping, like, as opposed to, you know, going out to the mall and buying a new outfit Does it make a difference? Thrifting or buying from consignment stores definitely could be a strategy. But thinking through that, oh, I'm going to buy this so that I can donate it later, may not be the best strategy as you're making your consumption and buying choices. Some research studies have shown that only one in five clothes end up on the shop floor. And the rest either end up in landfill or are shipped off for a secondhand clothing export market to Africa and other countries, which also affects their uh, local apparel manufacturing industry. You've also taken on kind of a more limited issue has to do with the freebies people pick up at conventions. Uh, They call it swag. How did that become a concern for you? And I have to, again, admit, I just came back from a big journalism convention, and this was definitely an issue for me. Unfortunately, the swag industry is made mostly of cheap plastic or um, things which we cannot reuse it, we cannot recycle just because they're made very cheap. Both people who take the swag and make the swag uh, are just looking for that temporary high of promoting their brand. But most of us would agree that we don't keep that for long. And at some point, we are going to toss it. 
Of course, we've mentioned new clothes in the introduction, but people throw out a lot of old stuff, too. When should a person consider throwing out something that they've had for a while? I think when you are no longer using it because it has deteriorated to a, to a point where you cannot repair or mend it. If a, an article of clothing can be repaired or mended, I think that would be our first um, strategy to hold on to that piece. And most likely, if you have invested, not bought, but invested in a piece of clothing which is well-made um, from better fabrics and better manufacturing practices, I think you can hold on to that piece for a longer period of time. And when I say longer, think about your mom's closet, your grandmother's closet. They would still have their pieces from, I don't know, 50 years. Can we say that for uh, something which we own today? Mm. Well, Many times buying is really an emotional experience and people end up getting things that, as you mentioned, they don't really need. How do you suggest separating that emotion for people and helping them to make more logical decisions about the clothing that they buy? Over the years, I've asked this question to myself as well, and it has always come back to the needs and the wants question. Do I really need it or do I want it? And there are times when you really want to have that experience, want to feel happy, want to spend some time with your family in a mall and buy things. And that's fine. But I think the strategy which I have promoted, encouraged people to think as they do these buying is just take a pause and think, do you have this in your closet? Do you really need it for something? Can you think of any other creative way of using this um, piece of clothing? Or do you really need to buy it? Just maybe pause and think. Talking about solutions, how do we get people to change that behavior? I think first is trying to understand what is the impact of individual choices. Because a lot of times consumers think it, it doesn't matter if I just want to have this one piece, but they're not thinking the broader environmental and um, social impact of their purchase. So thinking through what does this cotton t-shirt mean. So for example, a cotton t-shirt on an average uses 700 gallons of water for its production and the entire life cycle. That's huge for one cotton t-shirt. Or for a yes. denim, it is 1,800 liters of water. So again, trying to understand what's the environmental impact and also thinking through who is making your clothes and how far of it. Because a lot of people think it is an automatic thing which is churned out by machines, um, but about 70% of our clothes are still done by human labor. Um, so understanding what is being paid to these workers are there safe working conditions? And how are we making brands responsible for making this piece of clothing fair and environmentally safe? Well, you mentioned a lot about making better decisions and choices about the apparel that we buy. And bring me back to you're in the store and you're mm -hmm. having to make that decision. Do you have any tips or advice that the consumer could focus on to make that better choice? I think over the years, we have lost the habit of looking at the care labels and the fiber content. That would be my primary way of looking at a piece of clothing. Check what the fiber content is and if they're made of natural versus synthetic fibers and what is the care um, instructions, whether it's dry cleaning, hand wash, machine wash, what does it look like? 
With respect to brands, it is difficult at the point of store. But if you had planned your purchases, and that comes back again to the needs and the wants, just do a little bit of research before. Think of this as you're thinking of making food choices. You want to know where your food came from, uh, what is in the food. The same thing, what is in your clothes, who made your clothes, what is its impact um, after you wear these clothes. So thinking that through and making a planned purchase will go a long way in addressing overconsumption. Well, it seems like you're emphasizing that we should really take this time to think about the environmental impact and kind of take it off the item, but kind of look at it from a more worldly, global impact standpoint. Absolutely. The fashion industry is so globally connected and a t-shirt travels almost the entire world. Uh, U.S. is the third largest producer of cotton, but unfortunately we don't have any processing units and that gets shipped out to other Asian countries for processing and it might even travel even more for making into fabric and yarn. So it is It's traveling quite a bit, and that means it is also burning lots of fossil fuels in its travel. Now, obviously, marketing plays a big role in this, right? So they're selling self-image to both men and women right along with the clothes on the rack. Absolutely. If consumers are trying to be environmentally conscious, are there some fabrics that are better than others, some like polyester to stay away from? I would strongly advocate for using natural fibers or looking for more natural content because that's what is going to disintegrate at some point in the in earth when we dispose of it. So focusing more on natural fibers like cotton, hemp, wool, these are these are known mm-hmm. to provide great um, benefits for uh, skin as well. We touched on this a little earlier, but there are a lot of places that accept donated clothing like those big donation boxes you sometimes see in the parking lots. Does the clothing they accept go to someone in need? There are some businesses which are really legitimate, but they're also, especially the big bins outside, there is no way of knowing where your clothes are ending up. And especially now as brands are asking people to return their clothes so that they can get a coupon for their next purchase. There was a recent study which was done, and they had put location tags for these clothes which were returned to brands, and they never ended up with somebody wearing it, but either it was landfilled or it was burned, but never ended up in an environmentally better way. Wow. So really, there is no way to really know where your clothes are going to end up. At this point, no, but I know the industry is really working towards including blockchain and different technological advancements where you think of it as uh, a tag on your clothing label, which would give you the history of its ownership. Think of it like a win number for your car. What about other countries? Are they doing a better job of this? Are they less wasteful in general? What have you found in the research? In the research, we have seen that European countries have definitely been ahead of the game addressing textile waste. Laws have come out around extended producer responsibility, specifically around textiles and textile recycling, which is putting brands on a timeline to make sure that they address uh, what happens to clothes or any textiles after the use um, part of it. So European countries are putting policies and legislations in place, and I hope um, U.S. would follow soon. Well, I know there are companies where you can rent clothing 
So you might rent a special outfit for a party that you believe that you're only going to wear once. Is that part of the answer? Yes and no. Um, I think renting is good. If it is for a special occasion, you're not going to use that clothes for more than one or two occasions. So renting would be a great option. But it is also seen that one of the biggest renting um, brands has, let's say, 600,000 subscribers in the U.S. And they have plans like, on, let's say, minimum four times in a month you can rent how many ever you want, and they would send you the box to your house. So even if 100,000 uh, subscribers of this uh, fashion rental company were renting, it's that many boxes, 400,000 boxes moving around in the country, which adds mm. to the fossil fuel. So I think the industry was trying to look at solutions, but then we did not think through the entire supply chain. Another issue I gather, is what stores do when people return clothes or other items. In a lot of cases, they never put that stuff back on the shelves. They just throw it away. Am I right about that? Yes, some brands do have policies around um, customer returns never go back on the shelf, which is not communicated to the customers. I think brands want to be consumer, customer friendly, and they they would accept the returns. But the cost of putting that return back on the shelf is higher than disposing it off. And sometimes it's also related to cleanliness. Uh, some brands allow 60 to 90 days of return policies. So people could use it, send it, and then it then it is also a health hazard. Mm-hmm. We talked a couple of times about the responsibility the industry has, but how does a single consumer or even a small group of consumers change what the industry is going to do? Is that possible? I think it's definitely possible, especially because of the role of social media. And that was one of the reasons why companies and brands were called out. And this was done uh, about eight to 10 years where there was a social media um, hashtag movement called Who Made My Clothes, which brought the spotlight on the workers and the kind of wages and working conditions which they were working, especially in producing uh, countries in Asia and other places uh, where wages were much, much lower than what uh, the actual clothing was costing. So it sounds like consumer education is key. Consumer education, but also having the brands being accountable. Responsibility seems to be a very um, voluntary thing versus it becomes mandatory when we think about accountability. And most of our claims on brands' websites are we will strive to do this or we plan to do this versus we are actually doing this. Mandatory would be we have to do it because uh, our consumers need it or the laws or policies require us to do it. You've given us a lot to think about. Thank you, Sonali, for joining us. Thank you. Sonali Didi is an associate professor in the Department of Design and Merchandising at Colorado State University in Fort Collins. She spoke with us about the issue of massive textile waste in this country. Again, it's estimated that Americans throw away about 11 million tons of apparel every year. 
Speaking of solutions to waste, a new program on the Aspen campus of Colorado Mountain College is promoting sustainable clothing design and manufacturing. Here's CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg. CMC Aspen's new soft goods manufacturing program doesn't just focus on making outdoor clothing, but refurbishing and rewearing clothes. The Aspen Times reports the program aims to put garments back into the supply chain instead of the landfill. Students use recycled and refurbished sewing machines that are no longer used at CMC Rifle. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The town of Iola disappeared to make way for Colorado's largest reservoir. I have played and swam in Blue Mesa, and I've always been haunted that there are towns at the bottom of Blue Mesa. Shelley Reed sets her new novel in Iola. Read Go as a River with us for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. Then join us September 13th in Grand Junction. Details at CPR.org slash Turn the Page. With support from Elevation Press of Colorado. There are now three permanent markers in lower downtown Denver that accurately reflect part of the city's dark past that, until recently, had been all but forgotten. The markers were officially unveiled last weekend. They tell the story behind what led to the demise of Denver's Chinatown back in the late 1800s. Joy Ha is vice chair of Colorado Asian Pacific United. Yeah, we're super excited that the markers are finally installed. There are three historic markers. And they're placed strategically across lower downtown for areas that were significant to the Chinatown. The first one is on 15 16th Street. And that one talks about the history of the Chinatown. Why did Chinese people come to Denver? Why was there a population here? What was the Chinatown like? And then the second marker in the area is a 1620 Wazi Street one. And that one talks about the anti-Chinese race riot that occurred on October 31st in 1880. Um, talking about, you know, what were the conditions leading up to it, what happened afterwards, and basically the results of it. And then mm-hmm. our last marker is on 1890 Lawrence Street. And that one's a bit of a memorial to Look Young, who was the man who was beaten and lynched during the riot. Um, mm-hmm. At that location, we also have our mural. So it's something that celebrates our resilience while also honoring those that were affected and impacted by the violence and the racism. The markers replace a misleading plaque about the anti-Chinese riots that was taken down earlier this year. Its removal came with an apology from former mayor Michael Hancock. Ha says the new markers are an important way to acknowledge the real story behind what led to the fall of Denver's Chinatown. It feels relieving, I guess you can say, in a sense, and also feels reaffirming that, you know, our history is no longer something that's like forgotten or swept under the rug. And when we first started this work, even within the Asian American community, so few people knew that we used to have a Chinatown. There just really mm-hmm. wasn't much evidence of it. And if you walk through the areas that it used to be, there is no way that you can tell that it had cultural significance to the Chinese community at the time. So I think it's just reaffirming to know that, you know, our history is not going to be forgotten because it definitely was a threat of being forgotten. I spoke with Joy Ha earlier this year about the years-long effort to accurately reflect what happened in Chinatown. I also spoke with Roxana Soto with the city's Office of Storytelling. She produced a documentary on it called Reclaiming Denver's Chinatown. Welcome. Thank you. Hi. 
The story of Denver's Chinatown is heartbreaking yet fascinating. Roxana, as you were making this documentary, what was the most eye-opening thing you learned? The fact that so many people didn't know it existed. I'm not from Denver originally, so I felt like I had an excuse. I was like, you know, I'm not from here, so I've been here 16 years and I don't know about it. But it was overwhelming to hear that so many people were like, what? You know, Denver had a Chinatown? When? Where? What are you talking about? So I think to me that was the the most kind of like shocking thing. But then because people didn't know that it existed, there's also in doing the research, it was very hard because there was nothing written about it except maybe the riot and it was done incorrectly. And uh, finding archival images to go with the documentary was super hard. We relied heavily on the um, family members and the research that they had done to be able to put that together and get a better picture of what uh, this Chinatown, this very, very cool place uh, was like. Yeah, I can relate because that was my reaction, too. And I've been in Colorado for over a decade and I never heard of this. So paint the picture for us. What was Denver's Chinatown like in its heyday? Yeah, so from what we understand from what we've heard, and uh, Dr. Wei, um, history professor at the University of Colorado Boulder, wrote a book in which he describes uh, the historic Chinatown as a thriving place. It initially started with people that came after building the transcontinental rail- railroad, um, the Chinese immigrants that were instrumental in the building of the uh, transcontinental railroad. That's another uh fact that a lot of people don't realize how important they were in making that happen. So once that was done and they moved to uh, the mining, they eventually ended up in in this part of of Denver. But yeah, I mean, it had, you know, all kinds of businesses, restaurants, um, residential and uh, businesses were there. A lot of the stuff happened um, in in the alley. And that's, you know, uh, this this, uh, word that they use, this phrase that they use, uh, hop alley, which... uh, makes a reference to the opium dens that used to be there. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it sounds like it was a, you know, it was definitely a, a gritty place just because they, again, these were immigrants that really weren't welcome, you know. So it was kind of like a part of town where maybe they didn't get all the stuff that um, also Denver was very new. This we're talking about, you know, uh, 10 years after Den- Denver was founded. Um but and I yeah. understood it was very densely populated. Right. It was uh, very close quarters. Right. Very close quarters. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, you know, I I don't know. Sometimes while making the documentary, it was kind of like I close my eyes and try to imagine just the sounds and, you know, the smells. I, I can only imagine all of that. Dr. Wei likes to say in the documentary that it was definitely a haven for, you know, Chinese immigrants, Chinese uh, Americans. Uh, they felt uh, safe there, you know, because they didn't feel safe uh, anywhere else. And he always likes to say that, you know, it was a good place to go eat Chinese food. And that, that, that's, that's always a good idea. That's what my thoughts were. I was like, I bet this food was amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So exactly geographically, where was Chinatown located in downtown Denver? So the historical one, the original one, was between Wazee and Blake Street and between 14th and 17th Streets. So then it extended and it went all the way to 21st. Uh, so closer to what Coor- Coors Field is right now. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't large, if you think about it. It wasn't a very large area. but um, And they weren't, you know, at the height, it, I think they, they reached maybe a thousand people. So we're not talking, you know, gigantic community, but we're definitely, I mean, a thousand people is a good amount of people that you would think, you know, they left a mark and we, we should know about them and, and that they were there. 
it was a thriving economic center for the Asian community and Asian businesses. What led to its demise? Yeah, well, so uh, definitely one of the one of the reasons was was the anti Chinese race riot of October thirty first, eighteen eighty. Uh, which is when um, there was a brawl at a at a, a saloon in the area between, uh, I believe it was two Chinese workers. Yeah, it was there. It was a pool hall, and then there were Chinese folks playing pool, and then there were also white folks, and um, some white folks started harassing those Chinese folks, and um, the Chinese folks were asked to leave to prevent an altercation. And then they went out the back um, in the alleyway, and they were followed by the white folks, and it started becoming a fight. And then it became a riot. And then um, before you knew it, there were thousands of white folks that were descending on Chinatown and um, destroying the businesses. They were brutalizing the people that they saw there. And they, they lynched a man whose name was Luck Young. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I can't imagine, you know, um, how shocking that must have been. To me, it's always important to point out, though, that what happened at the saloon the way I see it, it was a detonator for something that was already there. It's like, you know, there, there already were racist feelings and all this, like, anger pent up. Like, it happens with so many other events, if you look at the history of the United States, right, where it's like, I don't know, people like to talk about that detonator, like, that's the reason why. It's like they got into a fight and then it became this horrible thing and this riot. But I think there's stuff brewing in the back, you know, that has to lead to something like this. It doesn't just happen like, you know, okay, well, mm-hmm. let's get into a fight and all of a sudden a thousand people or, or hundreds of people descend on, on, uh, on this, this area of, of, of Denver to destroy and pretty much just obliterate the area. Tell us a little about this anti-Chinese sentiment that is believed to have led to this race riot. Yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, the United States is uh, has that history uh, that's common among many immigrant groups, right? So anybody that came in that didn't look like them uh, definitely already created, and that's seen throughout uh, the history, throughout all kinds of ethnicities, you know? It, it, it's always interesting to me that it's, it's even like, it doesn't even matter if it's what race it is, because, you know, it was against Italians, against the it, it Irish. Groups, yeah. So this was happening to the Chinese for sure. There was the feeling of, you know, one, they're different. They speak a different language. They look different than us. And uh, they're coming to take our jobs. That was, <laughs> which is like when you think about it, it's like, wait, we're, we were talking about that back then. We're still talking about it now, right? There was that sentiment. Um, they also claim that, you know, this opium dens that I was talking about, and it's like, you know, they're bringing all these bad things to the city. You know, it's just becoming, who are these people? Uh, their food smells different. All this, just been different, been different. Who, who are they? We don't want them here. So that had already started happening. And I, I, I mean, from the research that I've done, that's the, my belief that that continued to grow and grow and grow until it came to that point when then there, there was this riot. But it's important to point out also that after the riot, it, what what came out of the riot, one of the things that came out of the riot was the Chinese Exclusion Act, mm. which is is important to 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 talk about. Um, you know, which basically meant that Chinese were excluded from coming to the United States, but the Chinese that were here were excluded from becoming citizens, and that is huge. You know, I don't know, I don't know if people realize how important that is. You know, because if you are not a citizen, you can't vote. And if you can't vote, you really don't have power as a community. You know, it's very, very difficult to continue to thrive and and go on. Roxana, you are a former journalist and an Emmy Award winning bilingual documentary filmmaker, producer and author. 
You co-wrote, co-directed, and produced this film for the city of Denver's Office of Storytelling. Tell us a little bit more about the process. What was it like? Yeah, so it actually started with uh, two cousins, Linda Lang and Heather Lang Clifton. They reached out to us. They reached out to the Office of Storytelling and basically said that, um, you know, they had these stories of their families and they were very worried that they were going to go away and disappear. The elders in their family had started to, you know, pass away. And they realized, like, oh, my God, we have so much history and nobody really talks about it. It's not in the history books. They don't teach it in school. And uh, we want to preserve this. We need to preserve this. So they reached out because that is pretty much the mission of the Office of Storytelling to cultural preservation through story. And uh, this was back in 2021, at the beginning of 2021. Oh, my God. We talked for about an hour, I think. And <laughs> had so many stories, so many anecdotes. I don't know. I've always been a sucker for a good story. I mean, as a journalist, obviously, that's my bread and butter. It was just incredible. It was like, I, I, I had, like I said, I had no idea. So to me, it was like, we need to put this out there. You know, we need to let people know. We initially thought it was going to be a story about their family, about the Lung family, mm. you know. Um, and uh, we started the project like that, kind of like, okay, well, let's tell that story. But then, you know, we were in touch with Kapu and we were in touch with Dr. Wei and the thing started kind of like becoming this bigger thing. And it's like, oh, my God, there's a bigger story here. There's really is a bigger story. And this story of what was Chinatown and what were these Chinese immigrants and what they did for uh, the cre helping the, in, in the creation of the city of Denver, but also what's been done now, what's been done today, because it is historical, but there's stuff that's happening today, which is really cool, which, you know, we wanted to make sure that people knew about this reclaiming of Denver's Chinatown. Well, it's wonderful that you let the story kind of organically tell itself. So it evolved into something different. You are not Asian. In fact, you're Peruvian. Did you have to build trust to get people to open up in this film? Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, I think that is the biggest challenge. It really is, you know. I think it, I, I'm not going to lie, I think it does help the fact that I'm um, Latina and I'm Peruvian, like you said, and I'm an immigrant. Mm. So I think that definitely puts me in a different position maybe to be able to reach out and just kind of, you know, it, it's not that I'm making it up. It's some of, the, some of the stuff I've gone through myself. You know, it wasn't even generations ago because I came here as a teenager. So mm. while I've lived most of my life in the United States, I, I, I do know the, the feelings and the things that people go through when, when they immigrate. So there was like a connection they felt that you had to the experience. I think so. I think so. I mean, I don't go around saying like, hey, I'm an immigrant. Look at me. You can trust me. So, <laughs> you know, I don't do that. But but it's uh, but I like that you, you asked this question because I think that um, that's really important. And I work very hard at that where, you know, I, I don't immediately just like set it out and be like, okay, this is exactly how we're going to do it. One, two, three. And it's kind of like, like you were saying, and I do have the luxury, luckily, to spend the time. So really, it's just listening, a lot of listening and kind of like maybe asking a few questions to guide the conversation. But it's really just, let me, let me hear you out. And, you know, maybe not everything's going to make it into the documentary. And I can assure you that it didn't because with, <laughs> with the lungs, we spoke, I think the first time we were in the house for five hours. So, wow. Yeah, so... Oh, uh, that's some cutting room floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, trust is, is of the utmost importance. And for me, the way that that works is really sitting down and, and just listening. Listening. Now, Joey, let's bring you back into the conversation. So you are vice chair for 
Kapu, which is Colorado Asian Pacific United, and also the founder of CORE, which stands for Community Organizing for Radical Empathy. And you are interviewed in the film. Yeah, we were so excited that... I Am Denver was doing that documentary. We had been working with the community for quite some time. We were working with the Linda and Lin- we call them the Linda and Linda, <laughs> um, the Lindas, uh, and we were just consistently trying to make sure how can we tell these stories in an authentic way. And so we were so grateful to have the opportunity to have these historic families, these stories being told in um, such a genuine and beautiful um, format. Um, specifically, Kapu works a lot to elevate and celebrate these untold histories as it relates to the local Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. So what we were able to do in the documentary was also talk about, you know, what are we doing now? So we know about our past, we know about our history, um, and then we're bringing this into the forefront of our minds. Um, what next? How can we continue to honor this legacy? How can we continue to remember these stories and make sure that they're not lost? Uh, and eventually we want to have a Asian American Pacific Islander Culture and History Museum, which would be the first in the Rocky Mountain area, as well as re-envision the alleyway that used to be the Chinatown to be um, some place that folks can go visit. Back to just the film, I understand you all introduced the filmmakers to the historic Chinese families that were involved in a documentary. Yeah, I I don't re- recall exactly how it happened, but we were all so interconnected. Um, we worked with uh, Linda and Linda all the time. Um, in fact, they lead one of our storytelling work groups. So we are constantly working with them. Um, Dr. William Wei is also on our board. Mm. Um, so it really was just like this huge communal effort where we, we just started talking to each other. And it, it just happened really organically, like what we were talking about. And it just ended up being this larger story where um, there are so many different components to it. And all of us were interconnected, interrelated, which I think also shows a lot about the meaning of um, community. Um, and shows a lot about how this this piece that was put out was truly a community effort. It was a grassroots effort. It wasn't um, someone coming into the community and extracting stories that they just thought were interesting. Um, it was something that the community thought was important and wanted to put out as well. Is this story of Denver's Chinatown, is this a story you grew up knew- knowing about and it was just widely known or was it something you discovered later in life? So the Chinatown story in Denver is one that not a lot of people know about, including the Asian American and Pacific Islander communities. Um, Growing up, um, Asian American Pacific Islander history isn't really taught in schools, um, not on a national level, and definitely not on a local level. So with me, um, and I was born and raised in Colorado, I never knew about the Chinatown until um, maybe half a decade ago when some some activists and advocates were trying to raise awareness about it. and it is definitely something new that not a lot of our community knows about. I mean, hopefully more people know now, you know, after the work that we've been doing. But it's it's important to know um, and to think about and reflect on why these histories aren't being told and to realize some of the structural components that prevent these stories from reaching, you know, the light, the light of day, right? Overall, I think it's most important for us to remember that Asian American history is American history, right? Our, our stories are just as important as what we hear in the mainstream narrative. Our people have been huge contributors to the building of this nation, right? We're talking about the Chinese Americans and um, building one half of the transcontinental railroad that was what really set America um, economically on the map. You found out about this story later in life. 
when you heard about it, did, was it a sense of pride for you or was there some anger about what happened? I think there was a lot of sadness and anger. I think growing up being told in so many small ways that your history, your culture isn't important is hard. And then hearing that there's this big part of your local history that people don't know about was was very frustrating. Um, you have the first offense of the riot itself. You know, you have the federal legislation and the, the state legislation and the xenophobic society structures that prevented our Chinatown from really rebuilding in the same way. And that's like the first offense, right? And then you have the second offense of people not remembering that it ever, ever even happened. That's That's definitely what was going through my mind and how I was feeling. It was sort of like, no, this is terrible, but Almost like, of course this would happen. I'm not surprised. I'm just disappointed. What would you say, in your view, are the highlights of the film? I love the focus on the families. We are so lucky to have these sort of living legends with us, um, these matriarchs, you can say, right, um, that can bring this history to the forefront because the peak of the Chinatown was maybe around a thousand folks. And now we don't really know who was there. We, we know some, like, some records of it, but in terms of families that have stayed here, those are the, really the only two that we know of. And so being able to preserve this and hear from them directly, wow, that's, that's living history. That is such a blessing to be able to hear directly from their families about their stories and not just the stories of you know tragedy of struggle but also stories of you know resilience of there's like some fun stories that they share about what it was like growing up in the Chinatown mm. and um, how the families were able to make money and like they, there's like the whole portion about like um, a lottery and like um, and how it wasn't necessarily legal but you know you had to do <laughs> you had to do what you had to do to survive you know and I, I think that just brought a lot of humanity to the stories and it brought a lot of this um, this personal touch that we don't really get in textbooks. Now by no means are you a representative of an entire community but in your view, what does having this film and this story finally told mean to members of your community here in Colorado? I think it's so exciting because it's it's showing the larger community that the Chinese community was here. We've been here. You know, we've we've been here. We were we helped develop Denver the way that we know it. We are still here and we'll continue to be here. It's it, it's it's so meaningful when you've been invisible and your your culture, your ethnicity has been invisible for most of your life. And for someone and for the general public to finally be like, I see you. I know you're here and I respect that. And it's definitely huge in just saying that we exist. That is what is so meaningful about this documentary. What do you hope people who see this film, especially those who were not familiar with the story, will get from it? I would really love folks to leave it with a lens of curiosity, um, to maybe start questioning about other histories. If if they didn't know that there used to be a Chinatown, um, they didn't know about the Chinese history, maybe start questioning, do you know about the Japanese-American history? Do you know about the Latinx history, right? Or the Black African-American history here? Because a lot of our histories, unfortunately, 
are not really being told and people don't know about it. And we we often hear that, you know, Denver isn't diverse, Colorado isn't diverse, which in some ways is true, of course. But the fact of the matter is that there have been people of different diverse backgrounds that have been here from the beginning and that have been instrumental to our city, that have had amazing lives and amazing stories that we just don't hear about. And it's so important for us to honor it. So I, I hope people leave the film Um, with a lens of curiosity, with a desire to learn more about these communities that that maybe they haven't really given a second thought to. Joey Ha is vice chair of CAPU, Colorado Asian Pacific United. Roxana Soto is with the city of Denver's Office of Storytelling. Ha is featured in Soto's documentary called Reclaiming Denver's Chinatown. We spoke in May. This past Saturday, three new markers were unveiled that accurately represent the story behind what led to the demise of Denver's Chinatown. When we come back, the final chapter of a beloved dog on the Western Slope. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. On the latest episode of Back From Broken, Colorado Public Radio's podcast about addiction and recovery, Katie Olawatoyan, who founded a support group called the Sober Black Girls Club, shares her story. A lot of us, honestly, every week, we just would cry because it was just, it was just life-changing. Mm. Your voice gets so hopeful when you talk about the club. Find Back From Broken wherever you get your podcasts. Supported in part by CU Anschutz. This past winter, an old stray dog became one of Mesa County's most beloved residents. Bindu had an unknown past and a heartbreaking future, six to 12 months to live. But instead of spending the rest of his life in a shelter, the goofy, floppy-faced boy found a new home. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg brings us Bindu's final chapter. Part Sharpay, part Pitbull. All love. The last time I saw Bindu was January. He was chasing after a ball with Sofia Sinkovich and Kyle Chu. They'd been fostering him only a few days. Yeah, go get it! Oh. <laughs> he was enthusiastic, but did not get. You have to give the ball back. Come on. drop it. <laughs> it was like no one had ever played fetch with him before. He'd recently been found running loose in Palisade. He was estimated to be 10 years old and diagnosed with terminal cancer. A close-up of his face, shared by Grand River's Humane Society, won over the public. Kyle and Sophia included. You know, you can see that sweetness. You can see how much love that old boy had to give. Big brown eyes and those droopy jowls, making him look permanently sad, even at his most excited. His face is what got him famous. (laughs) And when they were chosen to foster Bendu... Uh, you know, I think we, we felt, you know, Grand Junction famous. The strangers stopping them, thanking them for taking Bendu in, plus tons of comments online. The community outpouring was sweet and surprising. But for them, this was not about notoriety. It was about Bendu and giving him those experiences he'd probably never had. Snoozing on the couch. Bendu, you hungry? and being introduced to the joy of wet food. Do I have to spoon feed you? And yeah, Kyle did, with Bendu eventually chomping down with what looks like delight. No, give me the spoon. 
Kyle was really great. He got Bendu to learn how to sit, to stay, to shake paw. Um, we got him walking on a leash really well. We even took him camping in Moab. And, you know, he was a little apprehensive to get in the tent at first. Um, but then, you know, when we all got in there with him, uh, you know, he was, he was happy, just snuggling and, uh, you know, passed right out and, and was, was such a happy camper. And Kyle and Sophia wanted to stay present for it all. Every moment counted because we knew we didn't have many. Bendu was doing well. He gained weight. His rashy skin cleared a bit. He seemed more energetic. While camping, Kyle remembers thinking, Oh, we got to do this again. We got to, you know, we got to plan another trip. But one day, not too long after, Bendu started breathing funny. They thought it might be the heat. Turns out it was the cancer spreading which they always knew was going to happen. Sophia thought, All right, let's keep moving forward. Um, there just wasn't much more forward that Bendu could go. After being given six to 12 months to live, Bendu made it five. Sophia says it was clear he had reached the end. His eyes were saying, hey, I'm done. Like, I'm good now. They gave him wet food and homemade chicken broth and hung out together in the backyard, then went to a vet. After the first shot... His legs got shaky. He went to find the nearest sunbeam and just laid down, and we laid down with him. I was, you know, petting um, behind his ears. Sophia was, um, you know, scratching his butt. And even though they knew what would happen next. That second that his, his heart actually stopped and he did take that last breath, um, you know, I, I broke down. I, I had to turn away. As Bendu let go. You could just see a smile on his face. Like, he was so peaceful. And that felt good, but I was absolutely wrecked. Well, their life with Bendu was short. It was exactly as it was meant to be. Sophia got to be there for Bendu's death, like she wishes she could have been when her father died of cancer. And Kyle was able to accept it was Bendu's time, like he wishes he could have done when his mom was dying of cancer. And Bendu? <coughs> Bendu found his home. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Read about Bindu's story and see his pictures at CPR.org. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.